The holidays are upon us, and that's good. I hope that what we do in these services in the coming weeks will help to sharpen your focus and my focus and my love and your love for God. We are reading selected passages in the Bible as we move toward the end of this year. We started back in July, the very first Sunday of July, taking what we call a a guided tour of Scripture, just hitting the high points from the beginning, the book of Genesis, going all the way through to the book of Revelation. Not reading every word, that's not what a guided tour is about. It's about introducing you and me to the to the main concepts, hitting the high spots, uh, seeing the things that uh, help us want to come back and get more. Those readings will continue through the time of Advent, through the Christmas season, but we're going to be focusing our intentions on Sunday mornings, beginning next Sunday, upon the Advent of Jesus, His coming. So I just wanted to encourage you to to stay true to the, the readings throughout Scripture as we send those to you or you're checking them off the list of the printed reading guide that you have tucked inside your Bible perhaps. Keep up with those. Today, our readings focus upon something we hit last week in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. It is a prayer that Jesus prayed. We call it the high priestly prayer. Some study lessons or commentaries that you may look at would call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus because he indeed is called our high priest. He goes before us and makes intercession to God the Father. And as the priest made the sacrifice in the temple, so Jesus makes the ultimate sacrifice, the giving of his own life. The reason this passage is so amazing, it is without question in my mind the greatest prayer ever recorded. Not that all the prayers in the Bible, they're all inspired, they're all from God, but these are red letter words. They're the very words of Jesus. And we have the opportunity through Scripture to not just read about the Lord or not just read about what He did, but to actually hear the words that he prayed. This is indeed truly the Lord's Prayer. Don't confuse that with the model prayer that we have in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that message, that teaching that Jesus gave on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, in the sixth chapter he said something like this, pray like this. And then we have those words, that prayer that he prayed, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we... And forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We call that the Lord's Prayer. But that's really a model prayer. That's really Jesus teaching us the basic principles of of how to move through a time of prayer, acknowledging God and His holiness, asking for daily provision, 
praying for the power to forgive and acknowledging that his kingdom one day will come to this earth. Our prayers should model the statements that Jesus made in Matthew 6. But here, 17th chapter of John, this is truly his prayer. These are his words. The chronology of events, it's very simple. These words were prayed on Thursday night before he was taken and put on trial later that evening. Thursday night before he would be nailed to a cross at 9 o'clock the following morning on Friday. It's interesting that many people will say these words we're about to share from the 17th chapter of John, his high priestly prayer, parallel the very prayer that he prayed or the words that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus knelt by a rock as he went into the interior of that garden. And he was so intent in his prayer that he sweat drops of blood. That's where he said, Lord, if Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it be so, but if not, thy will be done. There are others who would say, this prayer was prayed before that prayer. And perhaps it was. John doesn't tell us anything about the prayer that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record in the interior of the garden. I would like to think that after that upper room experience, when Jesus took the bread and the cup of the Passover and turned it into what we call the Lord's Supper, he left that upper room after they sang a hymn, it says, and they made their way across Jerusalem to a gate on the eastern side of the city. And there Jesus went to pray in the garden. And on the way, on that journey, perhaps they stopped a time or two. Or maybe he prayed these words before they actually left that upper room. We just know that he prayed them. It's his prayer. Truly the Lord's prayer. 26 verses. Not that long a passage. For some people, this would be a huge prayer as far as the length. We're mainly accustomed to prayers that are short and to the point. We rarely have time to be still and to really contemplate and to meditate and to pray this many words. But Jesus did. And as you read through the prayer, it's very evident where he's headed in this prayer. In the first five verses, chapter 17, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, it's very evident that Jesus prays for himself. His words are very personal. He says, Lord, I ask you, Father, I want you to bless me. I want you to do certain things for me, for my hour of glory has come. That hour of glory will be the cross. And so in those first five verses, Jesus centers upon himself, not that he was selfish, not that he was putting himself first, but he prays for the power and the strength to face what he will face in the hours that are just ahead of him. And then beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 19, he prays for his followers, the disciples, the ones who surrounded him, his apostles, the twelve, yes, He prays for disciples that were living in that day. It's very evident that he moves in the sixth verse to not praying for himself anymore, but beginning to say, Lord, I pray, and Father, I ask you to bless those who are gathered around me right now. He doesn't use any first names. He could have. 
He could have said, I'm praying for Peter and James and John and Matthew, and I'm praying for all of the people that have followed me in these years. And he spends the bulk of the prayer, 6 through 19, praying for those people who would take the responsibility of making a choice, whether they would continue and be faithful after the Holy Spirit would come or whether they would turn aside from the path. Would the church even get started, I guess, is the idea. A lot of things were hanging in the balance. What would the future hold? And so Jesus spends an inordinate amount of time in this prayer. Praying for those disciples that surrounded him. Praying for those that would witness his crucifixion. And then, it's the last portion of the prayer. Verses 20 through 26 as we divide them out in our Bibles. Where he turns his attention away from praying for himself in that first portion. And praying for the disciples that surrounded him in that second portion. And then in this final portion... He prays for us. He prays for future believers. That's why this is the greatest prayer ever prayed. Is we're not reading about those for whom Jesus prayed. We're able to know that these very words he uttered, he prayed them for us. He prayed for you and me. I want you to take just a moment, maybe close your eyes, bow your head, whatever is best way, the best way for you to concentrate, to hear. And I want us to hear right now the very words that the Lord prayed for us. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. So they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are. I in them and you in me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and love them in the same way you've loved me. Father, I want those you gave me to be with me right where I am so they can see my glory, the splendor you gave me, having loved me long before there ever was a world. Righteous Father, the world has never known you, but I have known you, and these disciples know that you sent me on this mission. I have made your very being known to them, who you are and what you do, and continue to make it known so that your love for me might be in them exactly as I am in them. Prayed for us. The words that we just heard, translated from the language of the New Testament, the Greek, Translated from the very language that Jesus most likely uttered these thoughts in, which would have been Aramaic, his native language. Nevertheless, we know because we just heard 
the Lord Jesus pray for us. What did he pray? All of these words, these phrases, the way he addresses the Father. What is Jesus truly asking the Father to do in you and me? Because this isn't Jesus praying for himself here. He's done that. This isn't Jesus praying for the believers that are surrounding him. He's already done that. He turned his attention as though he could pinpoint where you and I would live today because he said, I'm praying not only for them, my believers who are surrounding me right now, Lord, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me, you and me. And if you take a close look at verses 20, 21, 22, and 23, those first four verses of this portion of his prayer, it's very evident where Jesus is headed. Did you get the spirit of it? He prays for our unity over and over again that we might be one, that we might understand the nature of the oneness of Jesus with the Father and that we would have unity one with the other. It's all the way through verses 20 through 23. His main intent, his main prayer request is for unity. Now, as I look through those words, as I understand that Jesus is saying that my mind would be his mind and that I would be unified with fellow believers, with other Christians, I would ask a question. Why? Why so much attention given to this one thought of unity? And the answer is obvious. Folks, think about it. Can this godless world, can they see God? No. Can the person that you work with who is far from God, who has no use for spiritual things, it's very evident, can they see God? No. But they can see you. They can speak to you. And this world that cannot see God can see us. They can see me. And the neighbors that live around me, that on one hand, I would look and say, well, I don't want to bother them or I don't want to come across as holier than thou. The simple fact is, they cannot see God. They cannot hear His voice. They can see you and they can see me and they can hear you and they can hear me. And unity is imperative Because if people cannot see God, but they can see us, then how are they going to view God? How are they going to have an accurate picture of Jesus if we're not unified? So why? Well, it's obvious. Another question that would come to my mind, looking at what Jesus prayed, because these are his words. He prayed them for me. He prayed that we would all be united, that we would all have unity. And I would say, well, what is that unity based on? What is the basis of it? And all the way through the prayer, it comes back to what? Our unity is based on the person and the work of Jesus. It's not based upon the church where we attend. It's not based upon the priorities that you and I might pray over and and say are most important. Our unity is going to be based first and foremost, and we always return to the very person of Jesus and to the work of Jesus. 
what his life accomplished for his hour of glory upon the cross. That is what unifies us. And that is the basis of unity amongst God's people. So then how can this happen? How can this unity be made real in the world in which we live? Very simple. I would say, looking at this prayer, the words that we heard Jesus say, and that is that you and I must commit to the things that bring us together. Not fight over the things that bring us apart, that separate us, that distinguish where we're from, the color of our skin perhaps, or what we deem to be the most important. We've said it before, but it's a threefold little statement, a little proverb that came centuries ago. It's not in the Scripture, but it's reflected in Scripture. In the essential things, we must have unity. In the non-essential things, we must give freedom. And in everything, we must act in love. Jesus on the night of his betrayal, before he is to go to trial and be whipped and beaten, the night before he's to go to the cross at 9 o'clock on Friday morning, that night he prays a prayer. And when it comes to praying for you and me, he prays for unity. The last portion of the prayer, he prays for our perspective. That's the best way I know how to put it. Father, I want those you gave me, this is verse 24, to be with me right where I am so they can see my glory, the splendor you gave me, having loved me long before there ever was a world. What kind of perspective? All you got to do is read verse 24 and your perspective should be improved greatly from wherever it is right now because this verse tells us that we're going to be with Jesus that we're going to see him in his glory, that we're going to be gathered together in heaven with our loved ones, with those who've gone before us, all of God's children. Our perspective is that one day we will see Jesus for who he really is. We will be with him in heaven. The very closing words of Scripture, the next to the last actual verse of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two twenty. Verse 21 simply says, grace and peace with you, amen. So really, the last real thought of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two twenty, is when Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. And the response of the writer of John is, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's a little preview of what Christmas is going to be about here at our church, Advent. Preparing, that's what Advent means. Looking for something to happen preparing for the coming of Jesus, making sure that our minds, that our hearts, that all of our families are doing that which is necessary to prepare because our perspective needs to be what? That one day Jesus will return and our prayer is come Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus prays for. Our perspective. Could your view of things Warrant a little changing? Could your perspective be improved? Most likely, it could. You think of that which weighs you down, that which puts pressure upon you. I don't know what it is for your life. I know what it is for mine. And it's a mixed bag of things, but they always come back around. Fear. Uncertainty. 
looking for where that paycheck is going to come from because you're seeking employment. Maybe understanding and knowing that your family relationship has been changed forever. What are you going to do? How are you going to move forward? Do you need perspective? When it seems like everything that hits you, everything that comes upon me, that takes my every waking thought or things that drag me down, that turn me away from the path God would have me to go. Do we need perspective? Jesus prayed for it. And the perspective is, Lord, come. I want to see you in your glory because one day that will be a reality in my life. Jesus prayed for you and me. The Scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. He's the the ultimate high priest. Now, we've got to use our imaginations because we live in a day and an age where this type of, uh, of worship experience, we just, we can't connect to. Most of us can't. But it's all over the pages of Scripture. And this is what the people of the first century understood and knew. And when they read these words, when they considered Jesus to be the high priest, when the book of Hebrews was written, and in those opening chapters, Jesus is called our high priest. That brought back all these thoughts to the people who understood that culture, who lived in that day. And it brought hope to them. We need a little bit of that. When the scripture says that Jesus is our ultimate high priest, it's referring to an actual person. The first one in the scripture was Aaron, the brother of Moses. And from that point on, there's a line of succession. It wasn't always perfect. Sometimes it was the high priesthood was a political football is the best way to describe it throughout the history behind the Bible. But the intent of the high priest was to be the one person who approached God on behalf of the people. There are some illustrations that you can use to maybe help this come to your mind and see the importance of it. What you're looking at is the high priest's ephod, it's called, E-P-H-O-D. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the inner room of the temple, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would wear this prescribed robe that you can see, the tunic there in the gray. But the most important piece that he would put on for religious symbolism was this ephod. You notice that on the shoulders, if you look at the very top of the picture, it's almost cut out, but at the very top on his right shoulder, you will see a black onyx stone. On that black onyx stone would have been written six of the 12 tribes of Israel, their names etched in Hebrew on that shoulder. And then the shoulder that you can't see has the same black onyx stone. Six more names of the tribes of Israel would be written on that black onyx stone. The symbolism, it's very clear. Look at it. The high priest comes before God and the high priest is shouldering the sins of the people the anxiety of the people. The high priest is the one who has the power. And so obvious, the symbolism read into our day and time is what? Jesus. Jesus has the power. He carries us just as the high priest. 
wore that ephod with the shoulder straps that had the black onyx stone with the name of the tribes of Israel. So Jesus has the power and he carries us. Now, the next picture is a full-blown high priest. There he is in all of his garment, the full regalia. You see the ephod that we saw up close. You see the shoulder straps, the black onyx stones are there. But it's that breastplate that I want you to give attention to because if you saw it on the previous picture and look at it now, you'll count 12 precious stones, rows of three, four rows, that are on the actually the breastplate that the high priest wore. The symbolism, very clear. The high priest bore the people close to his heart. Because when he entered the Holy of Holies, he not only was shouldering the responsibility of caring for the people, but he carried the people close to his heart because he loved them. Jesus is our high priest, the one who prayed for us. If he indeed is the high priest and he is, then what? Then when he approaches God on our behalf, he has the power to support us and to shoulder our sin and He carries us close to His heart because He loves us. Jesus, the high priest, He prayed for you and me. There's one aspect of this that is perhaps the most important. He prayed for us. He prayed for our unity and he prayed for our perspective. He is the high priest. He shoulders us. He has the power to carry us and he loves us. He carries us close to his heart just as the high priest did in days of old. But there is story upon story, one account after the other, where Jesus told us that the ultimate responsibility, though it rested in God and His providence and His power, we had to choose. We had to make a move toward Him. Where does that leave you today? Late in the evening Everyone was sleeping The father of the wayward son Slipped out in the night And looked toward the city And wiped away the tears And prayed the son could hear his father's cry Turn your heart toward home Turn your heart toward home You've been gone so long Turn your heart toward home For there are those who have never walked away from home But in their hearts they're so many miles away And the Father in heaven is the only one who knows 
If they'd listen, they would hear him say, Turn your heart toward home. Turn your heart toward home. You've been gone so long. Turn your heart toward home. You've been gone so long. Please don't wait too long. Turn your heart toward softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. Tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, turn your heart toward Father, help us. Jesus, thank you for praying for us. And may we turn our hearts toward him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We offer an invitation as we conclude this service this morning. An opportunity for people like you and me to make choices. Could be that you're here today. You've never asked Jesus Christ to forgive the sin of your life. You've never stepped across that line. I would invite you to make that choice today and trust Jesus to be your high priest because he can carry us and he loves us. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord, have never told anyone, I would urge you to come forward and profess your faith publicly in Him if you've never been baptized as a believer to be willing to do so. Maybe God would impress upon you to join our church today. Maybe that's what His will is for you, to find a place where you can serve or you can belong, a place where you can find unity with God's people. I pray that would be here. For many of us, it's the fact that we've headed another direction, isn't it? We've forgotten, we've grown weary, we've given up. Story after story, one account after the other where Jesus said, all you've got to do is turn back. All you've got to do is move toward me. Come back home. 
What does that mean for your life? Settle the issue right now. We stand together. We wait for you here in the front. As we stand, as we sing, won't you respond to him right now?